Let me open us with a word of prayer, and then we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1 again, and we'll get started. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the privilege we have of being a part of the body of Christ here at Lakeside. Lord, we are imperfect individuals, and we are an imperfect church, but we're your church, and we're your people, and I thank you for that. I thank you for the Sunday school class and the opportunity we have to be together week after week, and I pray, Lord, that as we cover our material this morning, we'll we'll be challenged to look at one another in a different way and also to look at the other members of Lakeside in a different way. Lord, I thank you for what you've done in each one of our lives, and I thank you for what you are continuing to do, and I pray that you will help us to hear your word and apply it to our lives, not just to be hearers, but to be doers of the word. We ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I did not originally intend to have a gap between my teaching two weeks ago and my teaching today. And I would encourage you, if you were not here, I was beginning to introduce and talk about the last section of 1 Peter chapter 1. In fact, it's verses 22 to 25 is where we are. And I'm going to read those verses in their entirety in just a moment. But if you recall, I gave a lot of information two weeks ago because there's some difference of opinion of how to interpret the first part of verse 22. There's just no way I can go back and redo all of that teaching, but I would encourage you, if you were not here, this is one of those times where it might be helpful for you, if you're curious as to how I come to the position that I come to, to go back and listen to that message. It's on the church's website and If you don't know where our messages are, it would be easy enough to show you, but all of our Sunday School messages wind up on the church website in a particular area, and you can go back and get caught up. But in 1 Peter, he is writing to a group of beleaguered Christians. They are walking in faith, but their lives are not easy. They've endured and are enduring persecution, but he wants them to understand that what's happening to them isn't evidence of something negative, it's evidence of something positive. They are in the family of God. God has shown his mercy to them and saved them, and he's enabling them to go through these ordeals and trials, something he'll refer to later as fiery trials, fiery ordeals. He's allowing them to go through this as a growth process to establish their faith, to increase their faith, to show that they truly are God's children. And he explains a lot of that in the opening parts of chapter 1, but then he gets into practical living. All of the theology that we know, all the things that we learn week after week about God and his character from his word are supposed to translate into action in two forms. One is we're supposed to think differently. Our minds are supposed to be transformed and we're not supposed to think like the world. How we used to think, we're supposed to think like Christ with his thoughts from his word. But it's also supposed to change our lives and actions. We're supposed to be holy like God is holy. And as Peter asserted that in verse 16, verse 15, be holy just like God is holy, he begins to lay out practical steps that show what that looks like. As I mentioned two weeks ago, the section that starts at verse 22 is a different thought, but really the rest of the book is showing what being holy looks like. It shows what a holy life looks like when times are tough, 
when difficulties arise, when you have hardships, when you have trials, when the world is bearing down on you, when your own flesh is fighting against you, Peter is showing you this is how you respond. And if you do what Peter says, I assure you, your life will be holy as God is holy. And so when we come to verse 22 through 25, we're really dealing with the issue of love. It's an aspect of holiness that manifests itself towards other believers and it's in the context of love. Now, this morning we're eventually going to get to the affirmative command, but the reality is Peter is just showing us how to fulfill the command to love that is throughout Scripture. I read a couple of weeks ago, Matthew 22, 36 to 39, the two greatest commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is a subset in that we're talking about, in this section of Scripture, the neighbors that are our brothers and sisters in Christ. So I'm going to read this entire section again, do a brief, very brief summary of what I talked about before, and go on to our application today. Follow along with me. I read from the New American Standard. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Two weeks ago, as I introduced this, I talked about what was at the very beginning of verse 22. This entire thing is directed towards love. In fact, the outline I gave was two principles of loving one another. And it stems from that command that you heard in the midst of loving one another. But my first point was that loving one another is mandated by God, but I didn't really get to the mandate. What I dealt with was this phrase, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls. As I indicated in that message that you could listen to if you didn't hear it, there's a lot of concern, a lot of debate about what that means. But I explained the reason that I came to the viewpoint, and I'm just going to paraphrase what I think Peter is saying. He is saying, in essence, since you repented and believed the gospel, and your sins have been wiped away. When he says, in obedience to the truth, he's just saying they've repented and believed, which is the correct answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? He's not saying they saved themselves, but he is saying that they exercised their will, which I explained can only come about when your heart has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. But they did believe. And so when he says that in obedience to the truth, they purified their souls, what he's really saying is, look, I'm establishing with you, I know you responded correctly to the gospel. You heard the gospel message, you believed... And when you believed, your souls were purified. And then he moves on. Again, it all comes back to, what must I do to be saved? And Peter's just affirming, you responded correctly. 
Now, that was a summary of an entire teaching, that little bit. But it was all preliminary, and the preliminaries weren't even done. That was just all I could cover in one week. Because it wasn't even a completion of the preliminary portion of the verse. In fact, when I first ran across this, not only did I write in the margins, what does this mean? But it looked to me a little bit redundant. Look again, since you have been obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. It almost seems redundant. The imperative command is fervently love one another. There's no question there. But that phrase, since you've been obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, caused me pause. It sounded like he was saying, you have a sincere love for other believers, therefore love other believers. And actually that's not far off. The phraseology might look a little puzzling, it was to me, but he's explaining something and he's saying something in those two phrases that are very significant. I hope I can articulate that to you, this is one of those times where I worry about my ability to communicate the depth of something without covering up what's really here. What I believe Peter's saying when he talks about for a sincere love of the brethren has to do with what occurs at the moment of our salvation. When you're cleansed by the blood of Christ... Certainly you're enabled for the first time in your life to love God. For the first time in your life, you have even the ability to obey the greatest commandment. The Bible says we're at enmity with God. We're enemies of God before salvation. When we come to faith, for the first time we have the ability to love God. But something else occurs. For the first time in our lives, we have a different outlook towards Christians. We have a different outlook towards other individuals who truly have saving faith. He terms it a sincere love of the brethren. The word love there has the context of brotherly love. We understand you say in America the city of brotherly love. We're talking about Philadelphia. It's the same word. It's a kind familial affection that you're supposed to have towards your natural family. People just assume it exists. What he's saying is when your souls have been purified, when your heart has been cleansed, you have that type of affection for other believers. And that's brand new. I don't have to convince you that by and large, the world looks at us not fondly anymore. Very negatively. They'll be fine with you as a Christian until you tell them you actually believe what's in the Christian book. Then suddenly you're a hate monger. They don't have any use for you. But when someone comes to faith, the Holy Spirit does a work and it transforms us from the inside out and one of the transforming events is how we view other Christians. And Peter uses the word, it's translated in some versions as sincere, just shows that it's genuine, it's not fake. The word had to do originally with actors who would wear a mask to portray a different character. He's saying, you're not wearing a mask when it comes to other believers. 
at the moment of your salvation, you have a sincere brotherly affection that comes from the Lord towards other believers. 1 John 3.14 addresses a similar thematic aspect of this. It says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. In other words, one of the ways that you know you're genuinely saved, that you've been born again, is that you have an affection for other believers. In fact, the absence of that love is evidence of a lack of salvation. Intrinsic love for other believers is part and parcel of salvation. If you don't have some inherent love for other people who name the name of Christ, there's something wrong with your heart. If you don't have some type of love for other believers, in fact, the scriptures say you're not saved. 1 John has a lot about this. 1 John 2, 9-11 says this, The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him, but the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I think one of the reasons, and it's not a universal truth. This isn't something that you can apply absolutely to every circumstance, but in a general sense, one of the reasons there's such divisions amongst Christians throughout America is because all the people that claim to be Christians aren't really Christians. There's a proliferation of churches where that church split from that church, which split from that church, which split from that church, which split from that church. And I'm not saying there's never a time where there shouldn't be a split, but a lot of that comes because the people that are in charge don't have regenerated hearts. So what Peter is saying as a preliminary matter is at the moment of your salvation, you have a sincere brotherly affection that you don't have to work up, it comes from the Lord, it's part and parcel of your salvation. And because of that, God demands something of us. Because He has given us a new heart with a new capacity for love, He demands something of us. Back at verse 22, Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently Love one another from the heart. This is the ultimate command. Verses 22 to 25, everything else revolves around this. The preliminaries and what follows, and it's all very important, but at the end of the day, this is the thus saith the Lord. Do this, fervently love one another. In fact, the earlier part of verse 22 is assuming it's already occurred in our lives. He's not telling us to do it. He's saying it's already occurred. This, though, he's telling us, you must do this. This is the reason, my first point of the outline, which has kind of gotten lost with all the preliminaries, is that God mandates this love. This is unequivocal. This is not optional. There's nothing in this that says, if this, then you don't have to obey. If that, then this goes out the window. This is an absolute. If you are a Christian, 
This is a duty that applies to you. In fact, it applies to all of us. Now, I'm going to pull apart some component parts, as I often do, and try and put it back together. But each word in this is significant. The idea of fervently really is true intensity. There's an earnestness. There's a depth. At its root, the term refers to something that's stretched to its maximum limit. It's not breaking, but it's stretched. In other words, this should consume us. We should desire to do this, and we should exert ourselves to fulfill this command. That's what fervently is all about. This is real effort. It's probably as far removed from apathy as you could get, and unfortunately, we all can be guilty of having an apathetic view of other believers. This is maximum exertion. And then the word love that we're supposed to exert ourselves for, he's changed the usage. It's not Philadelphia-type love, brotherly love. This is agape love. It's not just a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's an intentional act of the will that contemplates the best interests of others. It goes beyond just a feeling of affection. It involves action. It involves practical doing for the interest of someone else. Again, there's no more basic Christian characteristic than love for other Christians. That's what the phrase one another means. I've done it before in different contexts, but there's a whole list that you could find to compile of what we referred to in a prior church as the one another's. Pray for one another, care for one another, bear one another's burdens. Here, fervently love one another. In other words, the scriptures are filled with commands and that one another is very clear. That's not generic people out in the world. That's brothers and sisters in Christ. That's your brothers and sisters. This is something that occurs within the body of Christ. Now, don't misunderstand me. This doesn't encourage us to be insular so that we're only concerned with other believers. The Bible makes it clear we should do good to other people. But especially those in the household of God, we're supposed to work over time, exerting effort, thoughtful effort to love them. The other part, though, of this phraseology of fervently love one another is showing the reciprocity involved. In other words, as you walk and look, you're supposed to try and fulfill this command to love other people. It's supposed to be reciprocal. Everyone is supposed to be looking of how they can exhibit love to others and other people are supposed to be looking to how they can show love to you. It's never a one-way street. This isn't about me, 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 take, take, take. This is about all of us caring for all of us in a different way. And when it says that we're to fervently love one another from the heart, I think we understand almost intuitively this is talking about who we are, how we really think. The last thing in the world Peter is talking about is pull out your list of all the things you have to do as a Christian. Okay, you had to read your Bible today, check. You were supposed okay, pray, I pray a check. <laughs> love other people. Oh, God, I love somebody. Um, okay, hey, how are you? Good to see you. Okay, I checked that off the box. That's not what's being talked about here. 
This is the heart transformation that stops us from being obsessed with ourselves and causes us to be obsessed with God's people. Now putting this back together, let's reread verse 22. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. I'm going to assert to you what Peter is really saying is live in an evangelistic way. What do I mean by that? Jesus said this in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. It'll be familiar to you. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Even as I have loved you that you also love one another. Verse 35. By this... All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The world is supposed to see our Christianity not just by what we say, but how we interact with other Christians. Loving one another is truly evangelistic. Now, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Don't misunderstand me. People won't come to faith without hearing the gospel. But you shouldn't have to wear a t-shirt that says, I'm a Christian. In fact, far too many people wear t-shirts that I wish they would take off. And take the bumper sticker off your car as you pass me doing 85. Because you're showing contempt for God, not love for God, by disregarding the lawful authorities. But the reality is we're supposed to have an intense and deep, active love for other Christians. Now, as I mentioned before, this isn't just about our emotions, although our emotions matter. You should have some genuine affection for God's people. The reality is we still annoy one another. We still bother one another. We're not best friends with every other believer. But you should never truly despise and hate another believer. If you do, the issue isn't them, it's your heart. And let me be clear, I've struggled with this. There are people that did things to me a long time ago that I still have to ask the Lord for forgiveness for my heart attitude. But again, this command's not conditional. Okay, you fervently love all those who you really enjoy. Fervently love all those who also like baseball like me and Pastor Steve. Fervently love all those who like barbecue and like pulled pork. No, this is across the board. And it's not conditional. This is an absolute. So the question becomes, as you sit here this morning, on February 26, 2017, how do you know if you're loving I can tell you fervently love one another. I can tell you that this is exertion. This is the exercise of your will. But what does it look like? I don't have to go outside the Bible to show you. Because the Bible gives us several practical examples. And then I will illustrate that from our experience here at Lakeside. But for example. And again, you don't have to turn to all these places. But I'll make sure you get the reference. 1 John chapter 3 verses 14 to 18. 1 John chapter 3, verses 14 and 18. I've already read part of it. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. 
He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Well, that's pretty dogmatic. We know love by this, verse 16, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Sounds just what Jesus said. Verse 17, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. James addresses the exact same issue in James chapter 2, verses 15 to 16. James chapter 2, verses 15 to 16 reads this way. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled... And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? And in the context, it's talking about somebody that had the ability. It's not talking about two people who are destitute, who don't have anything. It's talking about one person had enough. They could have given clothes and food, and they didn't. So from a practical standpoint, how do you know if you're fervently loving? Are you trying to meet needs when you find out about them? That's why our church has a benevolence fund. Now, it's not the only way, but that is one way that we show love. That's why when someone is in need or they have a health issue, we try and set up meals for people. Because it's a way to tangibly show love. That's why in my time here, there have been times where we had fundraisers for people that had serious needs. That's why we've had people in our church that will give rides to other people that need to go to the doctor or need to go somewhere. The ways that this type of action play out are endless. But it requires that we know one another and that we share our needs with one another. Again, it's why in our church we help people who are adopting because we want to help Brothers and sisters. It's why we help in so many ways. We want to do that. It's why people offer scholarships for summer camp or try and help out people. And I can tell you, a lot of the help that goes on in our church occurs outside the benevolence funds. It's just one brother or sister hearing about a need and they meet it directly. But again, it requires that we know each other beyond just a, hey, how are you? It requires that we humble ourselves and share our needs with other people. It's part of the reasons why we have prayer groups in this class. Because we want to be able to share needs. Certainly we can love by fervently praying for one another, but sometimes it takes more than that. I hope that's one of the offshoots of this new email chain we've set up. Part of my burden is for us to be able to circulate needs that we have more quickly and more effectively. If you're not on the email list yet, see Donna. She's taking care of it for us. Get on the list if you haven't given it to her. She's already sent out a few emails about needs if you or about issues that I wanted to address. If you haven't received those, talk to her. We can get you on the email list. Here's the point. We want to provide opportunities for us to share one another's burdens. Because we can't fervently love one another from the heart if we don't know one another. 
And on these little things of life that might not seem so significant, not only do we notice when other people help us out, but God notices. I want you to turn for a second to Matthew chapter 25. Again, it's not some hidden scripture. It's something you may very well be familiar with. But in Matthew chapter 25, I want you to turn to beginning at verse 31. I could read even more than this, but I'm just going to read a section of Matthew 25 where Jesus provides an interesting account. Beginning at 31, he says this, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with them, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Now, I try and visualize things. I can't imagine that. Sounds like an awesome scene. Jesus on his throne, angels gathered around him. That's a sober moment. Particularly as he's separating the lost and the saved. The sheep are on his right. Verse 34 says this, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's going to be a happy moment. Wow. We're blessed of the Father? Okay, this is great. Verse 35, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when would we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Verse 40. The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. In no way is Jesus saying that at the judgment you'll have earned his favor if you've done these things. What he's saying is this is the characteristic of his true children. And when you exhibit love by responding and meeting the needs, even of somebody insignificant, even of somebody that's not known to anybody else in the church, if they're in Christ and you're meeting their needs, what he's saying is God sees that. That's evidence of your place in God's kingdom. Now, I have in my notes, and I'm going to do this, but I get really nervous when I start to share from my heart as opposed to sharing strictly from the text. But I hope what I'm about to share doesn't obscure the truth that I've been trying to convey. But my observations, after 24 plus years of being a Christian, and after a long time being an American, is that as a society, and often... Because of society, we as Christians, we have a completely wrong idea of what love looks like. And it comes into the church. We get tied up completely in emotions. How do I feel? Yet the Bible isn't caught up in how you feel. 
The Bible is dealing with action and life. Far too often we forget that feelings can be affected by something as simple as did you enjoy your dinner or not? Did you get a good night's sleep? Did that nagging cough finally go away? And we get so caught up in emotions that it messes up our interactions with other believers because what we take away from church is how we feel, not what we actually experienced. I hesitate to do this in one sense, but I really love Lakeside as a church. Now, I don't have the history with Lakeside that some of you do. On a Sunday morning, there are people who have been here a lot longer than Pastor Steve. And Pastor Steve's been here for a long, long time. Some of you have been here longer than I've been here. I've been here around 10 years. So I can't speak for all of the history of Lakeside. I can only say what I've witnessed since I've been here. And I've heard a critique of Lakeside expressed many times of Lakeside's not a loving place. And I'm not trying to criticize anyone who said that. That's their perception. But I've often wondered, I wonder what church they go to. Because that's not what I see. And I don't mean it personally. Time and time again, what I've seen is that when someone reveals a need, people flock to them to meet it. If someone's hurting with a lack of money, I have seen people abound in generosity. I've seen our benevolent fund seemingly inexhaustible. No matter how much goes out, no matter how many people we help, the Lord just keeps filling it back up. I don't know of a genuine need that's been made in this Sunday school class that people said, you know what, (laughs) let somebody else deal with that. I haven't seen it. I can't recall a time that a need was made known by a member of this body and everybody said, ah, the heck with them. So why would people say this is an unloving place? I think a lot of it goes back to a couple things. Number one, I think some people are driven by feelings and they shouldn't be. They should be more focused on the reality of what's going on, not just how they feel. But this second thing I think is a bigger issue. I think people have needs that they don't share and those needs go unmet and they're hurt. They have real needs but they don't tell anyone and they suffer in silence and they hurt in silence at the end of the day they said I was abandoned. When the reality is nobody could meet the need because nobody knew. I think at times some people expect other people to chase them down to the ends of the earth and find out what's going on rather than just say, I'm hurting and I need help. So let me share from my own self. I'm convinced the type of love that's being called for in verse 22, this fervent love exists at Lakeside. I've seen it over and over and over again. The Apostle Paul would tell us, excel still more. We need to do this even more. I want you to take seriously the prayer time with one another and listen. 
When somebody shares a prayer request, if you can't meet it in your group, let me know. We'll find a way to meet it. We want to help one another. Again, I'm talking about real needs. You have to have the wisdom. I have to have the wisdom of knowing the difference. But don't be like me and let your pride stop you for asking for help. Again, I'm just going to tell on myself, I love to help other people. I always have. I was raised in a home that was very selfless and my mom and dad modeled going out and helping other people. I saw sacrificial giving of time and energy and money and everything to help other people. So I was taught that way, and when I came to Christ, I loved that aspect of Christianity, to be able to help. If you tell me you need something, I'm going to do everything I can to try and meet that need if it's within my power. But I've shared with you before, I'm a proud man. I never want to tell you what I need. I'm happy to help others. I don't want to be helped. Why is that? Well, number one, I figure everybody's busy. they got other things to do. I don't want to burden people with my needs. I can eventually figure it out. Or so I think. Can I tell you, that is a wrong attitude in my heart. And if that's how you live, let me encourage you to be different. Because what you're doing is you're depriving other people in the body of Christ of the opportunity to use their giftedness. You don't want to be a bother? I don't want to be a bother. But that's what Christianity is. We're supposed to bother one another. In the right sense. Again, let me encourage you in your prayer time. If you have a need... Share the need. Loving one another is mandated by God and for us to be able to practice it in the way that Scripture commands, we have to be vulnerable with one another. I'm going to try and do a better job of sharing if I have needs. I can't tell you, even as I was thinking that, the struggle in my heart. Because I'm doubly that way. I'm so concerned about ever being seen as taking advantage of my position as a pastor to try and guilt people into doing something. But that's my problem again. Because I know you guys don't feel that way towards me. So I'm going to be trying to fight through my pride and share when I have a need. I want you to do the same thing. At the end of the day, we don't have an excuse for not loving. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you don't have to wait to fervently love. He's already enabled your heart to be prepared to act in the interest of others. Let me encourage you. Share with other people, but when you hear a need, if you can meet it, you meet it had a pastor in California that once said he was tired of people coming to the pastors and saying, I heard about a need. His point was not that he's callous. His point was you could meet it. You meet it. But if you can't meet it, let us know. That's what Faith Builders is here for. That's what Lakeside is here for. So I'm going to try and be more vulnerable next week. Um, <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. 
But let's love one another and share with one another. Let me close this time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I know the struggle of my heart. And I don't doubt that there are some others who share that struggle. We don't want to be burdens to other people. Sometimes we have stages of life where it seems like we have nothing but needs and we don't want to be embarrassed to tell the world that we can't handle it. But Lord, that's not what we're doing when we share needs. Rather, Lord, what we're doing is we're enabling other brothers and sisters in Christ to exercise the gifts you've given to serve one another. Lord, there are people in this room who have done to the least of these. And I thank you for that. And I pray that you'll help us, as scriptures often says, to excel still more. I pray that every one of us would feel love, but beyond that, that we would practice love towards our brothers and sisters here at Lakeside. And Lord, if there's a need... Help us go above and beyond to meet the needs of other believers. I ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.